as the first member of the first Quorum of Seventy sustained into the second Quorum of Seventy in this dispensation, I echo support and sustain this historic action and would want all to know I feel an honor to serve in this or any capacity in the kingdom of God. My message tonight is directed to the young men of the Aaronic Priesthood. I will admit before all of you, get me to a good football or basketball game and I'm a happy man. I have four favorite teams. Three of them are professional and one is a college team. When they win, my wife has a hard time keeping me in my seat. When one of these teams loses, I'm not very friendly. And with some of these teams, I've had a lot of practice being unfriendly this year. <laughs> but after a night's sleep, I find it doesn't really matter. Not really. But when a young man loses in his preparation for life, that really matters because that has lasting consequences. Playing ball is a great deal like life. You want to do your best, to be committed, to be a team player. You want to follow the rules so you don't foul out. You want to make points. The rules in real life are different from those in a game. Our rules are the commandments of God. When you make points, you make points when you serve a mission and draw close to the Lord, live the word of wisdom, stay morally clean, and live a life of service and church activity. How many points are you making in your life? Are you winning? When you make a basket in a basketball game or kick a goal in soccer, there's a great feeling of accomplishment and excitement. The same thing happens when you make gospel points. You feel good about yourself. You also feel closer to the Lord. You feel the excitement knowing you're doing what God wants you to do. You're in a different league when you're shooting for gospel points. It's a celestial league. You're one of the Lord's own sons, and He's depending on you to do your very best. There are forces of good and forces of evil in the world. You represent the Lord as a force for good. You've come to earth at this time for a special purpose. He has a mission for you to accomplish, a lifetime mission. You're probably going to have a tough opponent to overcome. Sometimes the media, friends, or other influences will try to pull you away from what is right. Choose to stand with the Lord. Join with the prophet Joshua who declared, Choose you this day whom ye will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. To win this most important game of all, you need to make five points. Let me be your coach for a few minutes. We'll talk about plays and assignments, making points for righteousness. The first point to be made is to serve your mission. Be determined to serve a mission. Prepare well for it. The prophet has asked each young man to serve a mission. That usually involves sacrifice. Oftentimes it means you give up something good for something better. It may mean postponing schooling or an athletic scholarship. It means saving money for a mission instead of a car. It also means sacrificing the things of the world. The prophet Moroni tells us, Come unto Christ, 
and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. The hymn tells us sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Do you know that sacrifice purifies our spirits and brings us closer to the Lord? Serving your mission is more than being called and sharing the gospel with your brothers and sisters for two years. That is important, but your mission is also doing what the Lord wants you to do throughout all your life. A mission can change the quality of your life in ways that you can barely imagine. You'll find out what that is only as you serve Him. Serve your mission. Make a point for righteousness. The second point to be made is to draw close to the Lord. How do you make that point? You make it by taking appropriate time to read the Scriptures daily, having earnest prayer and fasting. These practices will help your testimony grow. A seminary student said, I used to think the Scriptures were boring until I started to read them. At a recent state conference, a beautiful young woman in her testimony said, If you think the Scriptures are boring, then you are boring. They discovered that the Scriptures provide answers to the problems they may face with friends at home or at school. Gospel principles apply to any time period, Old Testament times or today. The Lord will speak to you through the words of the Scriptures. Draw close to the Lord through the Scriptures. Take a time out to pray each morning and night and as often in between as needed. That's one of the wonderful gifts the Lord has given you. He's accessible by prayer. Any time, any place, he's always there for you. Tell him your goals, your troubles. Give him thanks for your blessings. Ask him to teach you how you can help do his work. He hears your prayers. He cares about you. He wants you to succeed in living the gospel. Draw close to the Lord through prayer. Fast the first Sunday of each month and also when you need special help from the Lord. Make it a true fast. Fasting is more than abstaining from food. It is more than helping the needy through fast offerings, important as that is. It is a spiritual law, as just as well as the law of tithing or the word of wisdom. In a sincere fast, we're given an open invitation by the Lord to draw close to Him, to open our hearts to Him, to feel His spirit and pure love. It's a time to recommit to obeying His commandments. You'll find there are points to make as you draw close to the Lord through Scripture study, prayer, and fasting. Your testimony will grow. While many young men today are starving spiritually, you can grow spiritually. The third point, this is a tough two-pointer. The defense is all over you. Live the word of wisdom. Choose not to use drugs or alcohol before you're tempted. They are destructive to your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Using them is wrong. They can destroy you. With drugs, there is a high, but all the risk for you come down harder and lower after each experience. You can truly end up in the depths of hell. Young man, may you know now that drugs dull your conscience so that you discern less clearly between good and evil. 
President David O. McKay said, Sin can stun the conscience as a blow on the head can stun the physical senses. In the word of wisdom, the Lord tells us, in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving you this word of wisdom by revelation. Conspiring evil men want to make money by selling drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. They don't care how much death and pain come as a result. Beware of these merchants of death. Say no to those mind and body destroying drugs and chemicals that are ravaging the youth throughout the world. Why indulge when you know they destroy and promise nothing but sorrow? Young men, the ball is in your hands. Make that important goal for righteousness. Live the word of wisdom. Point number four. This is a three-point basket that could win the game. Stay morally clean. Your mission call, your mission in life, who and where you marry will be influenced by whether you lead a pure and chaste life. Alma taught his son Shiblon the importance of being morally clean. He said, See that ye bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. That is an interesting paradox. True love comes when you bridle your passions, when you use self-control. You should avoid anything that causes you to lose control of yourself or lose concern for the welfare of another person. Sharing affection can be a very positive, pleasing experience and was given to us by the Lord to strengthen the bonds between men and women. It's part of the force that leads us to marriage. The feelings generated can be very strong, but if you don't control them, they'll control you. To be prepared for your life's mission, I plead with you to purify your thoughts and feelings. You have the power to decide deliberately and intentionally what images you entertain in your mind and what emotions you feel in your heart. Movies and television often portray premarital sex as an appropriate expression of love between a man and a woman. This is a lie. Sex outside of marriage becomes an expression of selfishness, lack of self-control, and lack of concern for the other person. These actions will bring you unhappiness and are condemned by God. Protect the chastity of young women as you would protect your own life. We hold you priesthood bearers responsible first and foremost. Live a morally clean life. Make that winning point for righteousness. Point number five is to live a life of service and church activity. Be committed to activity in the church and balance this with service. Service opens windows in your life instead of just mirrors that always reflect yourself. Do more than just attend your meetings. Get involved in living and enjoying the gospel. Be a loyal and supportive member of your Aaronic Priesthood Quorum and prepare well for the day when you will hold the Melchizedek Priesthood, the priesthood after the order of the Son of God. Of deepest concern in all of your activities or whether you have private prayer, whether you read the scriptures daily as the prophet, President Benson, has asked you to do, 
And whether you agree with your parents and leaders about important spiritual matters, these are the kind of things that really determine whether or not you have a testimony and the spiritual stamina to finish the game of life. Now, my young friends, there will be other points you can make for righteousness too. But I ask you, can you make these five points? Do you have the determination to do your best, to live by the rules, to strengthen your courage and testimony? I know you can. But please, wake up. You are the youth of the noble birthright. There may be some among you who have fouled out. You've broken the rules, gotten off sides, moved before the snap, fumbled the ball. The ball, the gospel is in your hands. Know that the loving Heavenly Father understands your weaknesses and wants you back on His team. Talk to your bishop. He will help you come back. You are needed and loved. Now, young men, I speak as your friend, not as your judge. Practice these five points in your life. Write them down. Put them where you can see them daily. Check your progress frequently. There are points to win and blessings to obtain. You priesthood leaders and fathers, you are the home field coaches. Review these points with these, your sons. Discuss them in depth. Help these young men work on them. They will help lead them to joy and happiness and exaltation. And to this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters and friends viewing this conference session and listening to the proceedings, I bid you welcome this beautiful Sabbath morning. In the very first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord said, Hearken, O ye people of my Church, saith the voice of him who dwells on high, Hearken, ye people from afar. For the voice of the Lord is unto all men, and there is none to escape. For there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. And the voice of warning is unto all people by the mouths of my disciples whom I have chosen in these last days. And they shall go forth, and none shall stay them. For I, the Lord, hath commanded them. Just fifty years ago, the year 1939, the diplomats from the nations of Europe returned their position papers to leather briefcases, arose from their chairs at conference tables, and returned to their respective nations. Peace had perished. Soon mighty armies thrust across international borders. Warplanes droned overhead. Mighty tanks lumbered. World War II had begun. Hundreds of missionaries assigned in Europe were gathered to specific points and reassigned to labors in America. Void of the missionaries, the members in Europe carried on valiantly. And then carnage, suffering, and death enveloped all of Europe. After six long, painful 
destructive years. The guns went silent. Soon, peace was established, and a gigantic building, rebuilding program was commenced. The missionaries went back to the nations of Europe. They taught the gospel. The Church grew and developed. But there were some nations following the war where new political boundaries had been established, where international borders bristled with armaments, and the missionaries were not welcome. In these nations, the members of our Church began a period of patient waiting, fervent praying, and righteous living. These were the thoughts that were on my mind last October as my plane droned toward Berlin. I thought of my long association with the people of these nations. My heart overflowed with gratitude for our Father's blessings to them. I realized that it had been 20 years that the German Democratic Republic had been part of my ministry. I focused my thoughts on the people who so unflinchingly had borne their burdens and suffered in silence. I thought of the long history of the Church in that land. You see, before World War II, the area we know as the German Democratic Republic, erroneously referred to by some as East Germany, was the cradle of missionary work in all of Europe, the most productive area. In the city of Chemnitz, now known as Karl Marxstadt, six large, flourishing branches of the Church existed. In fact, it was the largest concentration of Latter-day Saints anywhere outside of North America. And then the terrible destruction of World War II took over. And after that long period, as I have indicated, the bombs ceased, the artillery went silent, and Europe lay devastated. Like moles from the earth came the people. Bedraggled, hungry, frightened, lost, in memory one could hear a little child calling out, Mutter, Mutter, where are you? Or Vater, Vater, where have you gone? They were greeted by nothing but a moonscape of shell holes, jagged buildings, gigantic craters, and literally mountains of rubble. Europe lay devastated and destroyed. It was at that time that the Prophet of the Lord selected a young member of the Council of the Twelve, even Ezra Taft Benson, to leave his precious wife, whom he loved with all of his heart, and his beautiful family, young in years, and undertake a special mission to the starving members in Europe. Brother Benson departed, and in Europe he found almost warlike conditions. But he traversed the land of German-speaking Europe from east to west. He fed the people. He clothed the people. He blessed the people. And he gave them peace and hope. He established the foundation for future growth. Another person who has been a wonderful benefactor to the people of those nations is Walter Stover, who has given unstintingly of his time, even his life, and generously of his means to bless those people. 
When I first made a visit to the German Democratic Republic, it was in 1968, and the governments of our country and that country were still not communicating effectively. It was a little difficult, but I crossed the border and went down to the little city of Gerlitz, way down near the Czech and Polish borders. As I met, met with the saints in Gerlitz, I noted they were in a very small and ancient building, but when they sang the songs of Zion, they literally filled the hall with their faith and their devotion. But my heart, my heart filled with sorrow. I looked about and saw that here were faithful people who had no patriarch to give them a patriarchal blessing. They had not received a visitor from headquarters in many years. They could not receive their temple blessings, their endowments, their ceilings. They, didn't have, they had no wards, no stakes, a few branches. Yet how magnificently they trusted in the Lord with all their heart. As I stood at the pulpit that evening, I testify to you, my brothers and sisters, that the Spirit of the Lord came over me, and I spoke words which came not from my lips. I said to the people that evening, I promise you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you are true and faithful, every blessing that any member of the Church enjoys in any other land will be yours. That evening, I dropped to my knees by my bed, and I pleaded with my Heavenly Father, Father, I am on thy errand. This is thy Church and thy work. Thou didst inspire the words I offered this evening. Wilt thou bring to pass the promises given to this noble people? And thus concluded my first visit to the German Democratic Republic. And the prayer began to be answered. Percy K. Fetzer was ordained a patriarch and assigned to be a regional representative to that land. And then Walter Krause, a faithful member in that country, was ordained a patriarch. To date, he has given 992 patriarchal blessings to the people, and his dear wife has typed every one of them. I made many visits to that nation in the intervening years. I remember on one occasion going to a priesthood leadership session. So eager were the brethren to obtain a few printed materials on how to organize an elders' quorum, how a branch should function, that the brethren literally ran to the front of the hall that they might receive the little packet. On another occasion, I was visiting a conference in the city of Annaberg in that nation. An older sister came forward and said to me, Are you a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles? I said, Yes, ma'am. And then she reached into her purse and brought forth a picture of the Quorum of the Twelve. And then, pointing to the brethren, she said to me, Which one of these apostles are you? I looked at the picture. The junior member in the picture was John A. Widsow. That dear sister had not seen an apostle in a very, very long time. Well, the work continued to flourish. A small 
mission, member mission organization was established, the first high priest ordained, district councils formulated. Eventually, a beautiful stake of Zion was brought into existence at Dresden and then again at Leipzig. All of the members of the church in the German Democratic Republic live in a stake of Zion. As we created the Leipzig stake, I was interviewing one wonderful young man, a branch president. I noted that he had been a branch president 21 years. He was only 42. Half his life he had been a branch president. But he was willing to carry on. In fact, the brethren were eager to accept any assignment which may be given them by the brethren. Prior to these marvelous events, however, there occurred a special prayer. I was assigned to offer a prayer of dedication on that land and the people. On April 27, 1975, I took a small group of leaders with me and went to an outcropping of rock high above the Elbe River. With Meissen on one side, and, of course, Dresden on the other. In that prayer of dedication, I remember so clearly my words. I said, O oh, Father, grant that this may be the dawning of a new day for this nation and for Thy Church in this country. And as I spoke those words, there pealed from a church bell in a steeple far below in the valley that beautiful ringing of chimes. We heard the unmistakable crow of a rooster heralding the dawning of a new day. As I stood there praying, I felt heat on my face and upon my hands. How could this be? An incessant rain had been falling all morning. But at the conclusion of the prayer, I looked heavenward and noted in the clouds that an opening had taken place and a ray of sunshine was streaming right to the area where we stood enveloping all of us. From that moment on, I knew that the hand of the Lord was with this work. Now our great problem, our tremendous concern, was that our people could not go to the temple of God. We tried every strategy. We proposed that the membership of the Church, family by family, once in the lifetime of a person, come to the temple in Zollikofen, Switzerland, or to the temple in England, not approved by the government. We even thought of having mother and father coming to the temple and being sealed, with children being left behind. That didn't seem to square with what I regard as an eternal family unit. There commenced more patient waiting, more faith, more prayers. And then, in a remarkable way, in one of the negotiating sessions, one of the government members said to our group, Why have our people here go to Switzerland? Why have them go to England? Why don't you build a temple here in the German Democratic Republic? The offer was accepted. <laughs> a beautiful site was provided, and ground was broken for a holy temple of God. The day of dedication was a glorious day. President Gordon B. Hinckley offered a beautiful prayer. Heaven was very, very close. That particular temple in Freiburg is an interesting temple. It is small but very busy. 
In fact, it's the only temple of which I'm aware where on certain days and evenings a patron must make a reservation in order to have a seat to participate in an endowment session. In fact, one stake president said to me, my home teaching is slipping a little bit. I said, why? He said, all of my people are in the temple all of the time. I thought, not bad, not bad at all. That's the purpose of a temple. Well, the work continued to go forward. Beautiful buildings were erected in Dresden, in Zwickau, in Leipzig, in Freiburg, and a beautiful building is underway in the city of Plauen. I had a letter just this week from a wonderful man in Plauen. He said, Dear President Monson, we are overjoyed with the prospects of our new building. My father and his father before him were leaders in this area, and this will be the first time we have had a meeting house of our own. Now several miracles have taken place, but there was another miracle needed. How can you establish a member base? How can you compensate for a declining population or a population which is growing older unless you have missionary work? This was the thought which coursed through my mind and through my soul as my plane touched down that day in Berlin. I was met by my associates. Russell M. Nelson and Hans B. Rinker, from our leadership in that country, President Henry Burkhardt of the Temple and Presidents Frank Oppel and Manfred Schutze of our two stakes. We were hosted initially at a wonderful luncheon by Herr Kurt Leffler, who was in charge of religious affairs for the German Democratic government. He was so cordial. He said, We have watched you for 20 years. We know your people are what you profess they are, honest men and women. How might we help you? The government officials journeyed with us to the city of Dresden, where the dedication of a stake center took place. They participated on the program. There in Dresden, when the saints sang, God be with you till we meet again, auf Wiedersehen, auf Wiedersehen, there was not a dry eye in the audience. I thought of the Prince of Peace who died on a cruel cross on Calvary. I thought of our Lord and Savior walking that path of pain, that trail of tears, that road of righteousness. I was comforted by His promise, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. With that beautiful promise ringing in my ears, it was off to Berlin for the crucial meetings pertaining to missionary work with the head of government, Herr Honecker. The day in Berlin dawned beautifully bright. It had been raining all evening, but now the sun was shining. We went into the corridors of the government buildings precisely on time, German time, not a second earlier, not a second later. We presented to Eric Honecker the beautiful statuette entitled First Step, depicting a mother helping her child take its first step toward its father. He seemed pleased, and then he escorted us into his inner chambers. We were seated at a large table. 
and at the table was Herr Honecker and his cabinet. I knew this was a crucial meeting. We had prayed and fasted. We needed the door to open for missionary work in that country. Herr Honecker said to us, We know your people. They believe in the work ethic. We know you believe in strong families. We know you believe in being good citizens in the country where you live. President Monson, the floor is yours. Make your desires known. Initially, I thanked him and his associates for their help through this long period of 20 years. And then I said, Herr Honecker, you will recall that prior to the dedication of our temple in Freiburg, that 89,000 893 of your citizens stood in line, sometimes for four hours, occasionally in the rain, that they might see a house of God. In Leipzig, there were 12,000 who attended the open house, and again in Dresden, 29,000, in Zwickau, 5,300, and every week of the year, about 15 or 1,600 people come to the temple grounds, the temple grounds in that beautiful nation. I said they asked questions concerning the Church. But Herr Honecker, we're unable to answer them. We wished we could tell every person who came to Freiburg and to these other locations that we believe in honoring and obeying and sustaining the law of the land, that we believe in strong families, abstinence from alcohol and abstinence from drugs and pornography. These are just some of the things we should like to tell your people. But in order to do so, we must have the opportunity of young men and young women coming here from other nations as missionary representatives. I can promise you that in the two years they are here, they will develop a love for your people and for your customs and for your language and be ambassadors for the rest of their lives. And then, Herr Honecker, I would suggest that you grant permission for young men and young women of your nation who are worthy members of our Church to receive a call to serve missions abroad. He then began a 30-minute discussion on the progress of the German Democratic Republic. I listened patiently, and then suddenly he turned to our group and looked at me and said, We know you. We trust you. We've had experience with you. Your missionary request is granted. My spirit literally soared out of that room. The meeting was concluded. As we departed, Brother Russell Nelson turned to me and said, Look at the sunshine streaming into this hall. It is though God in heaven is saying, I am pleased. The long darkness of night had concluded. The bright beautiful rays of day had dawned. The future lay before us in that nation. I remembered the word of the Lord, For in nothing doth man offend God, and toward none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things. I confess the hand of the Lord in these remarkable events. I thank our presidents of Stakes, our general authorities, our regional representatives, mission presidents who have helped through the years to bring these miracles to fruition. My dear brothers and sisters, 
The first ten young men and young women in that nation have been called as missionaries and assigned their fields of labor. They may be coming to your stake in England or your stake in the United States or your stakes in South America. And three days ago, Thursday morning, the first contingent of missionaries from this and other nations crossed the border into the German Democratic Republic, the first missionaries to do so in 50 years. They were met by their mission president, President Paul. They were greeted by government authorities. In one ward, 180 members of the ward turned out to welcome the missionaries. Oh, the future is bright. And from the depths of my heart and my soul, I declare the words, Thanks be to God. There seems to come from heaven that beautiful promise, Hear, O ye heavens, and rejoice, O earth, and rejoice, ye inhabitants thereof. For the Lord is God, and beside Him there is no Savior. His purposes fail not, neither are there any who can stay His hand. For thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious unto those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth unto the end. Great shall be their reward, and eternal shall be their glory. May this be the universal blessing of all mankind. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brethren, this has been a great meeting. I add my congratulations to our beloved President Ezra Taft Benson on the recognition he's received. It is an honor well deserved, and it compliments not only him but also the entire Church. It is a great tribute to the consistency of his life. I congratulate the Scout organizations in selecting a man whose entire life has been a shining example of the finest teachings of scouting. He is now in his 90th year, and as I think of his life, I see an undeviating pattern of adherence to principle. He has kept the faith. He has lived the commandments. He has been persuasive with all of us in his urging that we do likewise. It has been a long time since I have been in a scout troop meeting. I am not familiar with the present agenda for those meetings, but I do have vivid recollections of the way in which they were conducted when I was a boy. I became a scout in 1922, nearly 67 years ago. At that time, there was no cub program. A boy had to be 12 before he could enroll in scouting. We met in our troop meeting on Tuesday evening. We were a noisy group as we assembled. Our scoutmaster, Charlie Robinson, would blow his whistle, and we would all fall in line. We would raise our right arm to the square and repeat together the scout oath. 
On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the Scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. It was something of a ritual each Tuesday. We did not think about it very deeply. But the words of that oath became fixed in our minds. They have remained with me through all of these years. Now, this is not a scout meeting tonight, although some wonderful things have been said about scouting. It is a priesthood meeting. For the purposes of this meeting, I should like to suggest another pledge. For every man and boy assembled in this great gathering, wherever you may be, on my honor, I will do my best to magnify the priesthood of God which has been conferred upon me. That word magnify is interesting. As I interpret it, it means to enlarge, to make more clear, to bring closer, and to strengthen. I have here a pair of binoculars. I treasure them for their practical value, but also for sentimental reasons. They are useful in enlarging objects at which I might look. They are also a reminder of a good and great man who magnified his priesthood. They were given to me in 1962 at the conclusion of a wonderful series of meetings with all of our missionaries then in Europe and the British Isles by President Henry D. Moyle, who was a counselor in the First Presidency. Whenever I use them, I think of the gift as well as the giver. All of you, of course, are familiar with binoculars. When you put your lenses, the lenses to your eyes and focus them, you magnify and in effect bring closer all within your field of vision. But if you turn them around and look through the other end, you diminish and make more distant that which you see. So it is with our actions as holders of the priesthood. When we live up to our high and holy calling, when we show love for God through service to fellow men, when we use our strength and talents to build faith and spread truth, we magnify our priesthood. When, on the other hand, we live lives of selfishness, when we indulge in sin, when we set our sights only on the things of the world rather than the things of God, we diminish our priesthood. Jacob, the brother of Nephi, in speaking of the call which he and his brother Joseph had received, said, And we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads if we did not teach the word of God with all diligence. To every officer, to every teacher in this Church, who acts in a priesthood office, there comes the sacred responsibility of magnifying that priesthood calling. Each of us is responsible for the welfare and the growth and development of others. We do not live only unto ourselves. 
If we are to magnify our callings, we cannot live only unto ourselves. As we serve with diligence, as we teach with faith and testimony, as we lift and strengthen and build convictions of righteousness in those whose lives we touch, we magnify our priesthood. To live only unto ourselves, on the other hand, to serve grudgingly, to give less than our best effort to our duty, diminishes our priesthood just as looking through the wrong lenses of binoculars reduces the image and makes more distant the subject. Jacob says further, Now, my beloved brethren, according to the responsibility which I am under to God, to magnify mine office with soberness, I declare unto you the word of God. Every missionary has the responsibility to magnify his calling in teaching the plan of God. Every teacher has the responsibility to magnify his calling in teaching the word of God. Every officer has the responsibility to magnify his calling in teaching the order of God. Said the Lord in this dispensation to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, Magnify thine office. Further, attend to thy calling, and thou shalt have wherewith to magnify thine office. In that same revelation, the Lord said concerning Oliver Cowdery some interesting and remarkable things. In me he shall have glory and not of himself, whether in weakness or in strength, whether in bonds or free. And at all times and in all places he shall open his mouth and declare my gospel as with the voice of a trump both day and night. And I will give unto him strength such as is not known among men. Oliver, as you know, with Joseph Smith, received the Aaronic priesthood under the hands of John the Baptist and subsequently the Melchizedek priesthood under the hands of Peter, James, and John. He magnified that priesthood as witness to the Book of Mormon, as counselor to the prophet, as one to select the twelve apostles and to instruct them, as missionary in moving the Church across the frontiers of the Western territories, and as a teacher and speaker whose voice rang with great and persuasive power. But he turned and began to look from the wrong end of the lens. He found fault. He complained. His calling shrank. He diminished his priesthood. He distanced himself from those in authority in the Church. Gone was the voice of persuasion. Gone was the power of the priesthood of God which he once held and magnified. For eleven years he walked almost alone without friends. He walked in poverty and in sickness. Then in the fall of 1848, he and his family made their way to Council Bluffs and found themselves again among many of the saints who at that time were moving to the West. At a conference held in Canesville on the 24th of October, 
1848, he stood and said, Friends and brethren, my name is Cowdery, Oliver Cowdery. In the history of the Church, I stood in her councils. Not because I was better than other men was I called to fill the purposes of God. He called me to a high and holy calling. I wrote with my own pen the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the Prophet Joseph Smith as he translated it by the power and gift of God, by means of the Urim and Thummim, or as it is called by that book, Holy Interpreter. I beheld with my eyes and handled with my hands the gold plates from which it was translated. That book is true. Sidney Rigdon did not write it. Mr. Spalding did not write it. I wrote it myself as it fell from the lips of the prophet. I was present with Joseph when an holy angel from heaven came down and conferred upon us the Aaronic priesthood and said to us at the same time, that it should remain on the earth while the earth stands. I was also present with Joseph when the higher or Melchizedek priesthood was conferred by the holy angels from on high. Brethren, for a number of years I have been separated from you. I now desire to come back. I wish to come humble and be one in your midst. I seek no station. I only wish to be identified with you. I am out of the Church, but I wish to become a member. I wish to come in at the door. I know the door. I have not come here to seek precedence. I come humbly and throw myself upon the decision of the body, knowing as I do that its decisions are right. He sat down. He was accepted. He was baptized again. He longed to gather with the saints in the valleys of the mountains, but he died March 3, 1850, without ever realizing that dream. His is one of the most touching, pathetic stories in the history of this great work. So long as he magnified his calling, he was magnified. When he diminished that calling, he shrank to oblivion and poverty. He came back, but he never regained his previous stature. He never regained the incomparable promise given him by the Lord that, conditioned upon his faithfulness, he should have glory and be given strength such as is not known among men. Magnificent and moving is the promise to every man and boy who magnifies his calling as a holder of the priesthood. Said the Lord concerning you, they are to be sanctified by the Spirit under the renewing of their bodies. They become the sons of Moses and of Aaron and the seed of Abraham and the Church and Kingdom and the elect of God. Further. All that the Father hath shall be given unto them. There is no greater promise than this. I have seen and known such men. 
I met some such the other day when I was at the St. George Temple. I've known and watched these brethren for many years. Their hair is now white, and they do not walk with that vitality which was once their characteristic. Those of whom I speak have never had much of wealth, but they have had much of wisdom and they have had much of faith. They are men who, since the days of their youth, have held the priesthood of God, have walked in its light and magnified their callings. They have left home at personal sacrifice to serve as missionaries and as mission presidents. They have served as bishops and presidents of states. Wherever they have gone, whether in their vocational or ecclesiastical callings, They have touched a candle with the flame of their own faith and brought light where before there was darkness. In season and out of season, in sunshine and in storm, in defeat as well as in victory, they have kept their eyes at the right end of the lens, magnifying their callings and bringing closer, as it were, the sacred and eternal things of God. How do we do this? How do we enlarge the power of the priesthood with which we have been endowed? We do it when we teach true and sound doctrine. The Lord has said, And I give unto you a commandment that you shall teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. We diminish that calling. We shrink that mission when we spend our time speculating about or advocating that which is not set forth in the scripture, or that which is not espoused by the prophet of the Lord. Rather, ours is the responsibility, as set forth in Revelation, to bind up the law and seal up the testimony, and to prepare the saints for the hour of judgment which is to come, that their souls may escape the wrath of God, the desolation of abomination which awaits the wicked, both in this world and in the world to come. We magnify our priesthood and enlarge our calling when we serve with diligence and enthusiasm in those responsibilities to which we are called by proper authority. I emphasize the words diligence and enthusiasm. This work has not reached its present stature through indifference on the part of those who have labored in its behalf. The Lord needs men, both young and old, who will carry the banners of His kingdom with positive strength and determined purpose. Who's on the Lord's side who? Now is the time to show. We ask it fearlessly. Who's on the Lord's side who? We magnify our calling. We enlarge the potential of our priesthood when we reach out to those in distress and give strength to those who falter. To you and to me, who have been clothed with the authority of the holy priesthood, the Lord has said, Wherefore, be faithful. Stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. Succor the weak. Lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. There is so much of distress in this world. There are those, so many of them, 
who cry out in loneliness and fear with a desperate need for listening ears and understanding hearts. There are single parents struggling to rear families. There are houses that need painting, yards that need cleaning, and whose owners have neither the strength nor the means to get it done. There are strong young men among us. There are thousands of you in these congregations tonight, young men of the Aaronic priesthood who can bless others and be blessed while giving such service. We magnify our calling when we walk with honesty and integrity. We shrink it when we stoop to devious acts and selfishness, disregarding the interests and well-being of others as we spend all of our time to accumulate that which we cannot take with us from this life to the next. We honor our priesthood and magnify its influence when we walk in virtue and fidelity. Immorality and infidelity are totally inconsistent with the priesthood of God. The boy who has the strength to say no to drugs, the youth who has the strength to say no to beer and other forms of alcohol, the young man who has the strength to say no to immorality, magnifies his calling as a deacon or teacher or priest, the older man who can do likewise, the husband who is absolutely true, undeviatingly so, to the companion to whom he is married, the father who never abuses a child sexually or in any other way. These are men who magnify the priesthood to which they have been ordained with power from on high. Those who do otherwise shrink that power. They may have been ordained, but as the Lord has declared, when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, Behold, the heavens withdraw themselves. The Spirit of the Lord is grieved, and when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. Behold, ere he is aware, he is left unto himself to kick against the pricks, to persecute the saints, and to fight against God. Strong words, those but as true as the sunlight in the morning. I have seen such men. I have seen them fall and shrivel until today. They wallow in a slew of misery and evil with hate-filled hearts. To each of us, the Lord has said, magnify your calling. It is not always easy, but it is always rewarding. It blesses him who holds this divine authority. On the other hand, looking through the wrong lens shrinks and shrivels our power and diminishes our contribution. In working from the opposite perspective, the true and the natural and the godly perspective, 
we enlarge and lift. We grow in strength and gladness. We bless the lives of others now and forever. My brethren, I bear witness and testimony of these things. I bear testimony of this divine power which you and I hold. It comes from God, our eternal Father, and is exercised in the name of his beloved Son. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Elder Russell C. Taylor, a member of the Second Quorum of the Seventy, has just spoken to us. He moves like a point guard. <laughs> Excellent message. President Benson has asked that I take the opportunity to address you at this time. Brethren, as I look at you, you're an inspiring sight to behold. It's awesome to realize that in thousands of chapels throughout the world at this very hour, holders of the priesthood of God are receiving this broadcast by way of satellite transmission. Your nationalities vary, your languages are many, but a common thread binds us together. We, you and I, have been entrusted to bear the priesthood and to act in the name of God. We are the recipients of a sacred trust. Much is expected of us. Long ago, the renowned author Charles Dickens wrote of opportunities that await. In his classic volume entitled Great Expectations, Dickens describes a boy by the name of Philip Perip, more commonly known as Pip, could have been any one of us. Pip was born in unusual circumstances. He was an orphan. He never met his mother or his father. He never saw a picture of them. Yet he had all the normal desires of a boy. He wished for all he was worth that he were a scholar. He wished that he were a gentleman. He wished that he were less ignorant. Yet of all his ambitions and all of his hopes, they all seemed doomed to failure. Do you young men sometimes feel that way? Do those of us who are older entertain these same thoughts? Then one day a London lawyer by the name of Jaggers approached little Pip and told him that an unknown benefactor had bequeathed to him a fortune. The lawyer put his arm around the shoulder of Pip and said to him, My boy, you have great expectations. Tonight, I look at you, young men, and realize who you are and what you may become. And I say to you, as that lawyer said to Pip, My boy, you have great expectations, not as the result of an unknown benefactor, but as the result of a known benefactor, even our Heavenly Father. And great things are expected of you. All of us, before the period known as mortality, lived as spirit children of our Heavenly Father. In His wisdom, He has given us a record in the Book of Abraham which tells us something of that existence. To quote, Now the Lord had shown unto me, Abraham, the intelligences that were organized before the world was, and among all these there were many of the noble and great ones. And there stood one among them that was like unto God, and he said unto those who were with him, 
We will go down, for there is space there, and we will take of these materials, and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell, and we will prove them herewith, to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. And they who keep their first estate shall be added upon, and they who keep not their first estate shall not have glory in the same kingdom with those who keep their first estate. And they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. As we journey through mortality, let us remember from whence we came. Let us be true, brethren, to the trust vested in us. Let us remember who we are and what God expects us to become. Ned Winder, a lifelong friend and formerly the executive secretary of the missionary department, tells an amusing and humbling encounter which he experienced. Two of the general authorities, accompanied by Brother Winder, were walking down a staircase in the church office building in view of a mother and her son who were sitting on a couch facing the staircase. Seeing the brethren approach, the boy said to his mother, Mother, who is that first man? She replied, He is Elder Marvin J. Ashton, a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles. The boy continued, Who is the man next to him? Mother replied, He is Elder Lauren Dunn of the First Quorum of the Seventy. Then the boy asked, pointing to Brother Winder, Who is that man? The mother spoke more softly, yet her response was audible to Brother Winder. She said to her boy, Oh, he's nobody. <laughs> now that shocked Brother Winder. But remember, my young friends, you are somebody. You are a child of promise. You are a man of might. You are a son of God, endowed with faith, gifted with courage, and guided by prayer. Your eternal destiny is before you. The Apostle Paul speaks to you today as he spoke to his beloved Timothy long years ago. He said, Neglect not the gift that is in thee. O Timothy, keep that which is entrusted to thy care. As you define your goals and plan for their achievement, ponder the thought, The past is behind. Learn from it. The future is ahead. Prepare for it. The present is here. Live in it. At times, all of us let that enemy of achievement, even the culprit's self-defeat, dwarf our aspirations, smother our dreams, cloud our vision, and wreck our lives. The enemy's voice whispers in our ears, I can't do it. I'm too little. Everyone is watching. I'm nobody. This is when we need to reflect on the counsel of Maxwell Maltz, a Nobel Prize winner, who declared, The most realistic self-image of all is to conceive of yourself as made in the image of God. You cannot sincerely hold this conviction without experiencing a profound new sense of strength and power. This is good medicine for all of us, young and old. After all, men are but boys grown older. One wife said of her husband as he admiringly gazed at his new boat, 
the bigger the boy, the bigger the toy. Life was never intended to consist of a glut of luxury, be an easy course, or filled only with success. There are those games, brethren, which we lose, those races where we finish last, and those promotions which never come. Such experiences provide an opportunity for us to show our determination and to rise above disappointment. I read the other day about an athlete who is a member of LaSalle University's wrestling team. He has but one leg, lost due to a shooting accident which occurred many years ago. Does he complain? Does he curse God? Does he withdraw from the match? On the contrary, he competes with the best of them. His record this year is 10 wins and 8 losses. A teammate said of him, he inspires us. Like some of you, I know what it is to face disappointment and youthful humiliation. As a boy, I played team softball in elementary and junior high school. Two captains were chosen, and then they in turn selected the players they desired on their respective teams. Of course, the best players were chosen first, then second, then third. To be selected fourth or fifth was not too bad, but to be chosen last and relegated to a remote position in the outfield was downright awful. I know. I was there. How I hoped that the ball would never be hit in my direction, for surely I would drop it, runners would score, and teammates would laugh. As though it were yesterday, I remember the moment when all that changed in my life. The game started out as I've described. I was chosen last. I made my sorrowful way to the deep pocket of right field and watched as the other team filled the bases with runners. Two batters then went down on strikes. Suddenly the next batter hit a mighty drive. The ball was coming in my direction. Was it beyond my reach? I streaked for the spot where I thought the ball would drop, uttered a silent prayer as I ran, and stretched forth my cupped hands. I surprised myself. I caught the ball. My team won the game. This one experience bolstered my confidence, inspired my desire to practice, and led me from that last-to-be-chosen place to become a real contributor to the team. Brethren, we can experience that burst of confidence. We can feel that pride of performance. A three-word formula will help us never give up. Opposition is ever with us. The temptation to detour from our chosen path is at times a daily confrontation. Joseph L. Townsend wrote the words of a hymn which we sing frequently, Choose the right when a choice is placed before you. In the right the Holy Spirit guides, and its light is forever shining o'er you when in the right your heart confides. A wise father, speaking to his son, placed the question of choice in a direct setting. He counseled, Son, if you ever find yourself where you shouldn't ought to be, get out. Good advice for a son. Good advice for a father also. 
Altogether too frequently, brethren, we're prone to place the blame on Lucifer for every temptation encountered or every sin committed. The words of the Apostle Paul place in perspective such thinking. To the Corinthians, Paul counseled, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. As priesthood holders, we have a responsibility, brethren, to stand up and be counted. Some years back, when David Kennedy was appointed as Secretary of the Treasury, a reporter attempted to entrap him with a question. Mr. Kennedy, do you believe in prayer? The response was, I do. Then the clever question, Mr. Kennedy, do you pray? Came the firm reply, I believe in prayer and I pray. Just this past month, a mammoth 747 jetliner, while flying over the Pacific, sustained a gigantic tear in its side, ejecting nine passengers to their deaths and threatening the lives of all. When the pilot, Captain David Cronin, was interviewed, having brought the craft safely back to Honolulu, he was asked, What did you do when the plane ripped open? How did you cope? Captain Cronin replied, I prayed, then went to work. My brethren, this is an inspired plan for each of us. Pray, then go to work. In the helter-skelter competitiveness of life, there is a tendency to think only of ourselves. To succumb to this philosophy narrows one's vision and distorts a proper view of life. When concern for others replaces concern for self, then our own progress is enhanced. Tonight, we have witnessed the highest honor scouting is able to bestow conferred upon our beloved President Ezra Taft Benson. This recognition is not a response to a single deed or a temporary commitment to service. Rather, it recognizes a lifetime of constant and selfless service to you. It was said of our Lord, He went about doing good. President Ezra Taft Benson daily exemplifies this example of the Lord. At the February meeting of the National Executive Board of Scouting, young men were recognized who had saved the life of another during the past year. One of those so honored was an ironic priesthood bearer, 15-year-old Thomas T. Nelson from Lacey, Washington. Are you listening in, Tom, tonight? Tom had rescued two boys from a raging river which could have carried them to their deaths. I love his humble yet powerful response to the recognition. He said, I jumped in and pulled him out. Thousands of scouts became heroes not long back by blessing the lives of others during the campaign, scouting for food. On a special Saturday, with publicity having been previously given, the homemakers of America were asked to contribute canned food to feed the hungry. Scouts became the facilitators of the objective. 
Hundreds of tons of food were collected, stored, and distributed. Those who gave were blessed. Those who received were fed. And those scouts who helped achieve the objective will never again be the same. They went about doing good. Serving throughout the world is a great missionary force going about doing good. They teach truth. They dispel darkness. They spread joy. They bring precious souls to Christ. Just a few weeks ago, in Guatemala City, Guatemala, I witnessed a modern miracle, even the result of God's guidance given to His servants and the blessing of His people. At a regional conference, almost 12,000 members filled the Estadio del Ejercito, the local soccer stadium. The sun bathed with its rays the large gathering, while the Spirit of the Lord filled every heart. This was a day of thanksgiving, marking the 42nd anniversary of the arrival of the first missionaries to that land. John Forrest O'Donnell spoke to the vast throng. I hope you are listening, Brother O'Donnell. He it was who, in 1946, stood alone as the only member of the Church in that nation. Personally importuning then-President George Albert Smith, Brother O'Donnell facilitated the entry of the first missionaries. On November 13, 1948, his wife, Carmen Galvez de O'Donnell, became the first convert to be baptized in Guatemala. This day of conference, as throughout the years of their marriage, she sat by the side of her husband. While President O'Donnell spoke, my thoughts drifted back to the many missionaries who had come to the land of Guatemala and the hardships they had endured, the sacrifices they had made, and the lives they had blessed. The experience of one describes the devotion of all. While I have on a previous occasion mentioned the experience of this missionary, following my recent visit to Guatemala, I felt impressed to once again share it with you. While serving in Guatemala as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Randall Ellsworth survived a devastating earthquake, which hurled a beam down on his back, paralyzing his legs, and severely injuring his kidneys. He was the only American injured in the quake, which claimed the lives of some 18,000 persons. After receiving emergency medical treatment, Elder Ellsworth was flown to a large hospital near his home in Rockville, Maryland. And while he was confined there, a newscaster conducted with him an interview that I witnessed through the miracle of television. The reporter asked him, Can you walk? The answer, Not yet, but I will. Do you think you will be able to complete your mission? came the reply. Others think not but I will. With the President of my Church praying for me and through the prayers of my family, my friends, my missionary companions, I will walk and I will return to Guatemala. The Lord wanted me to preach the gospel there for two years, and that's what I intend to do. There followed a long period of therapy, 
punctuated by silent yet heroic courage. Little by little, the feeling began to return to his lifeless limbs. More therapy, more courage, more prayer. At last, Randall Ellsworth walked aboard the plane that carried him back to the mission to which he had been called, back to the people whom he loved. Behind, he left a trail of skeptics and a host of doubters, but also hundreds amazed at the power of God, the miracle of faith, and the reward of determination. In Guatemala, Randall pursued his responsibilities. He walked with the use of two canes. His walk was slow and deliberate. Then one day, as he stood before his mission president, Randall Ellsworth heard him speak the almost unbelievable words. You have been the recipient of a miracle. Your faith has been rewarded. If you have the necessary confidence, if you have abiding faith, if you have supreme courage, place those canes on my desk and walk. Slowly, Randall Ellsworth placed one cane and then the other on the desk of his mission president, turned toward the door and toward his future, and walked. Today, Randall Ellsworth is a practicing physician, a stalwart husband, a loving father. His mission president was none other than John Forrest O'Donnell, the man who helped bring to Guatemala the word of the Lord, the leader who on Sunday, March 5th, addressed the throng assembled for a regional conference. Forrest O'Donnell visited my office not long ago and in his modest manner recounted our experience with Randall Ellsworth. He then said to me, Together you and I have witnessed a miracle. I have kept one of the two canes placed upon my desk that day when I challenged Elder Ellsworth to walk without them. I would like you to have the other cane. With a friendly smile, he departed the office and returned home to Guatemala. This is the cane, my brethren, that he gave to me. To me, it serves as a silent witness of our Heavenly Father's ability to hear our prayers and to bless our lives. It is a symbol of faith. It is a reminder of courage. O oh, brethren of the priesthood, like the Charles Dickens character Little Pip, we have great expectations. The goal of eternal life awaits. May we strive unflinchingly for its attainment. In the language of you young men assembled tonight, let's go for it. I ask that we do, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We shall now be privileged to listen to President Gordon B. Hinckley, First Counselor in the First Presidency, who will be our concluding speaker. Before President Hinckley speaks, we note that the nationwide CBS Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 Sunday morning. Those desiring to attend must be in their seats before 9.15 a.m. 
Because daylight saving time begins at 2 a.m. tonight, we encourage you to move your clocks ahead one hour before you retire this evening. As you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, we ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, to be courteous in driving. We express our gratitude to you young men of the Ricks College Centennial Priesthood Choir for your beautiful presentation of the music this evening. President Benson turned to President Hinckley and then to me and said, This is a powerful choir. I said, President, they're from Idaho. He said, I know it. (laughs) (laughs) Following President Hinckley's closing remarks, the choir will sing, Rise up, O men of God. The benediction will be offered by Elder Lynn A. Sorensen of the Second Quorum of the Seventy. President Hinckley.